Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Fahad Razak. Fahad is a staff general internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and is a Bell Fellow at the Population and Development Centre at Harvard University. Hey, Fahad, how are you doing? Hey, Amal. Great to be with you. Uh, it's great to have you. As always, today, Fahad and I are going to be talking all about antibiotics and infections. Uh, so focusing on a little bit of bread and butter clinical medicine, Fahad is going to talk about antibiotic treatments for community-acquired pneumonia, and I'm going to be talking about antibiotics for skin and soft tissue infections. And we're going to, of course, as always, end the episode with our Good Stuff segment. But this week, we're trying something a little bit new. I think, you know, here at the Rounds Table, we all always want to prevent things from getting stale. And so uh, we're rolling out a new segment. We might have some new segments at the beginning of each episode, a slightly different new segment. But today, we're calling it Clinical Pearl Jam. So I'm going to spend two minutes. You like that, right? Uh, did I, do I get any warning when these things are going to happen? No. How can I give you a warning? <laughs> then your glee would not be so authentic. So Clinical Pearl Jam, we're going to talk about... We were going to play some music, but I'm terrified of copyright. So uh, just imagine your favorite Pearl Jam song. We'll give you five seconds to do that. And now we'll move on. So we're going to spend two minutes talking about sepsis. Fahad, start the clock. Keep me on track, okay? I don't want to spend more than two minutes. But I'm going to do a two-minute summary about sepsis, talking about some of the latest evidence, and in particular, reviewing the latest release of the surviving sepsis guidelines, which have just been updated in response to a few different large randomized control trials evaluating early goal-directed therapy. We've reviewed one of them on the podcast almost a year ago now, um, and there have been a few others in the interim. Just another one last week, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so sepsis. What is sepsis? As we know, sepsis is defined as the presence of two or more SERS criteria in the setting of an infection. And the SERS criteria we should review. Uh, Fahad, I would quiz you, but I feel like that would be reversing the hierarchical roles of staff and resident, and so I I wouldn't want to do that. And do you know what my response would be? My response would be, did you know there's a recent New England Journal article that's actually questioned the definition of SERS criteria and showed that it's not sensitive or specific? That is beautiful. So what are the SERS criteria? First, uh, temperature. Uh, Second, heart rate. Third, respiratory rate. And fourth, elevated or depressed white blood cell count. Uh, So those are our classic four SERS criteria. And... As you said, Fahad, a recent large study in the New England Journal of Medicine, a study out of Australia and New Zealand looking at almost 1.2 million ICU patients, showed that basically one in eight of them did not meet SERS criteria for sepsis uh, and only had one or fewer of the SERS criteria, suggesting, as you said, that the SERS criteria are neither sensitive nor specific, and perhaps we need to reevaluate our most fundamental definition of this very important clinical entity. So that's my 45... How are we doing for time? We're getting close. Okay. Two minutes up. Oh, no. I'm going to breach time because you interrupted me, 
and I'm going to add in uh, a very quick summary of the latest surviving sepsis guidelines. So the surviving sepsis guidelines helpfully lay out the actions that physicians have to carry out in the first three hours or the first six hours following the diagnosis of a patient with sepsis. These have been updated to reflect the fact that three large randomized control trials published in the last year have shown that the placement of a central line in order to monitor a patient's central venous pressure or central venous oxygen saturation did not improve outcomes compared to usual care based on clinical assessment alone. So the recommended actions for initial resuscitation in the first three hours have not changed from what they were previously, and there are four recommendations. Within three hours of the time of presentation, patients should have a lactate level measured, they should have blood cultures drawn prior to the administration of antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics should be administered, and intravenous fluids in the form of crystalloids should be administered at a tune of 30 milliliters per kilogram, which is roughly 2 liters for an average 70 kilogram person. What's changed is the recommendations for the 6-hour time window. Historically, within 6 hours, clinicians were told to target their interventions to a set of specific goals based on the initial rivers protocol. The 2015 version of the surviving sepsis guidelines say that vasopressors should be applied to target a mean arterial pressure of greater than or equal to 65, which was similar to before. But what's different is that if patients are persistently hypotensive, clinicians can assess tissue perfusion and the patient's volume status using their clinical gestalt alone on the basis of vital signs or their physical exam findings, and that this is just as good as the invasive monitoring. So in summary, the latest surviving sepsis guidelines have responded to our literature to suggest that the key in managing sepsis is early resuscitation, early antibiotics, and that ongoing clinical assessment using a holistic approach is just as good as more invasive monitoring. All right, Fahad, that was the... Five-minute summary. Five-minute summary of sepsis. <laughs> so we're going to have to reassess our new uh, timeline criteria. Uh, I, for... I'd say call it Pearl Jam, just be realistic about timelines. I like it. Okay, well, it's about the same length as a Pearl Jam song, and you can decide what you would rather have been listening to for the last five minutes. And don't Yellow lead better. Yellow lead better. <laughs> say that five times fast. Okay, Fahad. Now that you've talked, listened to me drone on, uh, talk to me about antibiotics for community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, sh sure. Thanks, Amal. So I'm going to talk about an article that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, called Antibiotic Treatment Strategies for Community-Acquired Pneumonia in Adults. It was by POSPA and colleagues. And the major finding of the study is that for patients with community-acquired pneumonia, or CAP, admitted to non-ICU wards, that beta-lactam monotherapy is non-inferior to either a beta-lactam plus macrolide or a respiratory fluoroquinolone. And their primary outcome for this was 90-day mortality. Fahad, this calls into question everything I've been doing for the last four years of residency. And for that little exam you wrote last week. That's yeah. right. So, uh, you know, it's getting to the background behind this. So how to treat pneumonia, which antibiotic to use may seem to, to be a relatively clinically specific question, but you know, we should keep in mind from a public health perspective that community-acquired pneumonia is one of the leading causes of hospitalization, major driver of healthcare expenditure, and one of the important causes of death globally. And so the choice of antibiotic is really important. It has cost implications, and it can also be a driver of resistance patterns. 
there's been a lot of guidelines that have suggested that, uh, including our own Canadian guidelines that have suggested that for patients admitted to non-ICU beds, that either a beta-lactam, so something like amoxiclav or ceftriaxone, plus a macrolide, so something like azithromycin, is a reasonable choice, or you can use a respiratory fluoroquinolone, but you shouldn't be using a beta-lactam by itself. Uh, however, there's actually very limited evidence in support of these recommendations, and especially the evidence to suggest that a macrolide should be added on top of a beta-lactam, at least with respect to mortality benefit, is limited to just observational data. There was a recent trial by Garen and colleagues at JAMA Internal Medicine that did compare these two strategies, that compared beta-lactam plus uh, macrolide versus just made of lactam, but it was focused on clinical status at day seven, and it was empowered to look at mortality. And in that trial, at least, they did, they did find a suggestion that the combination therapy was better, but it was a cloudy finding. And so the question of what antibiotic strategy to use is still relatively unanswered by clinical trials data, even though we do have guidelines suggesting uh, the combination therapy or, or fluoroquinolone. Okay, so Fahad, how did these authors study this really important question? Okay, so what they did is they uh, did a cluster randomized crossover trial design. We'll get to what that means in a second. It was a lot of words. That's right. That's right. So they looked at seven hospitals in the Netherlands, total sample size of just over 3,300 patients, and they were pretty broad in their inclusion criteria. The only patients they excluded in this trial were those who were under the age of 18, patients with cystic fibrosis, those who had been hospitalized within the last two weeks for unrelated causes, or those who came from long-term care facilities. And what they did is, in this randomized uh, crossover trial design, they looked at four-month treatment blocks, and hospitals during the treatment block had to use one of three strategies, either beta-lactam by itself, beta-lactam plus a macrolide, or a fluoroquinolone by itself. And they randomized the sequence that the hospitals would go through each of these treatment blocks. And then they looked at 90-day mortality as their primary outcome with a non-inferiority margin of three percentage points. In this trial, they defined adherence as using the assigned antibody class as the initial therapy, even if there were changes later in the treatment course for other medical reasons, for example, a culture that came back suggesting a different antibiotic that should be used or an allergic reaction. Okay, and so what did they find? So their major findings in an intention-to-treat analysis was that beta-lactam monotherapy was not inferior to beta-lactam macrolide combination therapy or fluoroquinolone monotherapy. Uh, the 90-day mortality rate was 9% versus 11% versus 8.8% respectively. Um, looking at some secondary outcomes, the median length of hospital stay was six days for all strategies, and there was no difference in complication rates. Um, they did find that about 10 to 20% of patients did have a change in the antibiotic treatment that was used during the treatment course, but this was due to clear medical indications, things such as culture-guided therapy. They also found that in the beta-lactam monotherapy group, that empirical antibiotic coverage for atypicals was reduced by about 70% overall. Uh, and this has implications when we think about uh, reducing uh, the development of antibiotic resistance and also because macrolides have known complications, for example, more likely to have drug-drug interactions and potentially some cardiac toxicity. Yeah, so really interesting findings. Can you tell me a little bit about the microbiology in terms of culture results and you know, PCR results for atypical organisms? Were they able to define what bugs were causing? You know, one of the hardest things with pneumonia is that you know, we have poor microbiological information to guide our therapy. Yeah. So what, did, what were they able to find? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you know, the majority of our pneumonia treatment in North America is empiric treatment. It is not culture-guided therapy. And so in this trial, they did not have culture results for all patients. It was a pragmatic trial. So just like we do in North America, pe- uh, physicians could send off uh, samples for culture, but those samples were often negative and they weren't always sent. For the samples that were positive, they found similar patterns to what we would see here. So about 16% of patients had strep pneumonia. The next uh, largest group was homophilus influenza at about 7%, and then atypicals were only 2% of the sample. So before we get into, I guess, interpreting things, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is what were the drugs that they used? So what beta-lactams did they use? What macrolides did they use? So within each of these three antibiotic strategies, they did have some preferred treatments. So for example, in the beta-lactam monotherapy group, the preferred treatments were amoxicillin, amoxclav, or a third-generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone. Uh, They suggested that patients not be put just on penicillin, for example. In the beta-lactam macrolide strategy, the same beta-lactams that I just described, plus the macrolide could be any of azithromycin, erythromycin, or clarithromycin. And then in the fluoroquinolone, they they suggested that you use a respiratory fluoroquinolone, so either moxifloxacin or levofloxacin. So all of those seem like pretty reasonable choices, maybe just to compare to our practice here in Toronto, because I can't even really speak for Canada in general, but in Toronto, certainly, as you said, we tend to use a combination of ceftriaxone, azithromycin, or a respiratory fluoroquinolone as first-line empiric antibiotics. I'm a little bit surprised by the use of amoxicillin alone, uh, given that the lack of the clavulin means that you don't have any really or very good gram-negative coverage, you don't have any staph aureus coverage. So I'm wondering uh, how many patients got amoxicillin alone versus uh, amoxclav versus what we would commonly use, which would be the ceftriaxone. Yeah, you're right. It is really surprising that that was allowed as preferred therapy. And amoxicillin alone was used in 30% of patients. So 30%? That's right. So one third of the sample. So really surprising. And it makes you wonder whether uh, the dogmatic way that we add clavulin is actually necessary. And again, I'm saying that based on the empiric findings here, which is that all three strategies were found to have similar effects on mortality. I mean, the spectrum difference between amoxicillin and amoxclav is dramatic, right? And, uh, you know, if you can, if we can get away with being significantly narrower, that would be that would be remarkable, a remarkable finding, I think. That's right. And, and the workhorse antibiotic that we use in hospital, ceftriaxone for these patients, was only used in this trial in 17% of patients. So oral therapy with either amoxicillin or amoxclav was used in over 70% of the patients. Wow, that's amazing. And what about uh, the, the macrolides? Did they, we, as you said, we would commonly use azithromycin? Yeah, that's right. So we uh, preferentially uh, use azithromycin, at least within the teaching hospitals in Toronto. And, you know, part of that's driven by the concern about the interaction between the other macrolides and uh, other drugs that people would be on. So a lot of that evidence has come from ISA studies led by Dave Yearlink. And so we tend to use a lot of azithromycin, but in this trial, it was only being used in 19% of patients who were on macrolides. 1-9. Uh, clarithromycin was used in 27%, and erythromycin was used in about 35%. So much higher use of non-azithromycin macrolides than I would have expected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so... What does this say for the generalizability of these findings to our context? 
So I, I think that these findings uh, provide pretty strong evidence that we can use beta-lactam monotherapy on our patients, that we don't need to add a macrolide. But there's a significant caveat, and, and that is that a lot of these decisions about antibiotics are driven by local resistance patterns and local patterns of microbiology for those specific diseases. So our pneumonia uh, treatment in Toronto, in Canada, or wherever this is being applied should be driven by what the most common organisms are in our patients that we're treating. And so before this is applied, I would rely on uh, local antibiotic treatment uh, guidelines that would tell us whether this is an appropriate strategy. Sure. I, I think, you know, the major difference really here is the role of atypical pathogens. And one of the things that I think we talk about fairly commonly in clinical practice is this conventional idea that people with atypical pneumonias don't often get sick enough to be hospitalized, right? They're your classic walking pneumonias, and they're not really the pneumonias we're as concerned about when people are sick enough to be hospitalized. Um, and I guess my question is whether this, um, first of all, do we know that atypical pathogens are just as prevalent in uh, the Netherlands as they are here, and, and would that affect our ability to interpret these results? And then secondly, is that is that something we can believe now? You know, this was something that this sort of classical teaching, maybe, maybe that's being borne out. So it's hard to know what the specific city-by-city city context is, but overall the Dutch guidelines where this trial was conducted, was conducted in the Netherlands, suggest that atypicals are common in the Netherlands, and they're common here, we know by our own microbiology. So uh, in that way, at least, these trials don't suggest, this trial suggests that this treatment strategy would be appropriate to apply both in North America as it is, as it was successfully applied in the Netherlands. Okay, so it sounds like you're pretty convinced by this. I am, and, and like I said, I think the final thing that I would wait on is our local uh, antibiotic guidelines to support this finding, but I think it should probably enter clinical practice in the short horizon. I have to say, the one point that I I have to say that I was really impressed with is this is a really non-sexy study in the sense that we're, they're studying something that, uh, you know, these relatively inexpensive uh, therapies for a very prevalent and common condition, but I'm really impressed by this research because it's obviously super important, and yet, you know, where do, where do they get the funding and the ability to actually do this and design a study like this? I have to say I'm really impressed by the, the study itself. Yeah, I, so I agree with you. I think we don't probably focus enough on bread and butter questions like how should we treat pneumonia, something that we commonly encounter. So I, I actually really admire the fact that this trial went after that kind of question. And I think it's actually a surprisingly hard question to answer. And the reason why it's hard to answer is that uh, often the treatment for pneumonia is started by emergency room physicians because it's a high acuity condition and we know that starting pneumonia early has benefits in terms of clinical outcomes and probably survival. Is that and a reference to the surviving sepsis guidelines? <laughs> it is, which I hope will now be down to two minutes instead of five minutes. Um, but the, the treatment for pneumonia, it's, it's important to start early. It's often started by the emergency room physician. And studies that have looked at the appropriate treatment for pneumonia have then randomized patients after that point to one of, you know, whatever strategy is being considered at that point. The problem is, is that typical pneumonia treatment is only five to seven days. And so if they receive one day of treatment based on what the emergency room physician chose, uh, there's a question of whether that would dictate the outcome 
rather than what they were randomized to after the fact. And what these physicians did in this trial to overcome that problem is that they had the entire hospital adopt a strategy. And that strategy was used by both the nurse practitioners, the emergency room physicians, and the admitting ward hospitalists or internists or other physicians. And so they were able to ensure that all patients coming into hospital received the suggested antibiotic treatment strategy. And they had that occur for a four-month period. And so people were really able to buy into the treatment strategy. And then they had a transition to the next strategy that was being used. So a really smart design that overcame a logistical problem in studying this question. Yeah, it's a neat application of this cluster randomization model. That's right. That's right. And I, when you see this being applied and apply, being applied this successfully, you think that this probably is going to be a model that's going to be applied now to other questions where you need to institute care right away in the emergency room. But then there's a question about what the appropriate strategy is after that. All right. Let's change gears. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about two antibiotics for another bread and butter condition, uncomplicated skin infections, also published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a study of clindamycin versus trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for uncomplicated skin infections. And this randomized control trial showed that there was no significant difference between those two treatment strategies with respect to either efficacy or side effect profile for the treatment of uncomplicated skin infections. So, Skin infections obviously are a very important cause of morbidity, uh, and this trial was really looking at ambulatory patients who were presenting with an uncomplicated skin infection defined as either cellulitis or an abscess or both. And they studied four uh, centers in the United States, urgent care clinics, emergency departments, and some associated clinics, and they conducted a double-blinded randomized control trial of treatment strategies with either clindamycin or TMP-SMX, uh, which I am going to use as my abbreviation for trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. To the benefit of all of us. I think so. So first-line treatment for uncomplicated skin infections that are relatively mild uh, and can be treated with oral therapy for ambulatory patients is really directed against staph and strep species so the Infectious Disease Society of America guideline recommendations for the management of skin and soft tissue infections for mild cases of, uh, of infections that can be treated for ambulatory patients recommend oral treatment with either penicillin, cephalosporin, cloxacillin, or clindamycin as first line. Where TMP-SMX comes into play is when Staph aureus is a possibility or is a suspected causative agent and in particular, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, or MRSA, uh, is best treated by TMP-SMX first line for oral uh, uh, treatments for skin and soft tissue infections, and that's the recommended first line treatment. So in regions where MRSA rates are significantly high, such as most of the United States, Ceptrav or clindamycin are really the two first line treatments, and this trial was comparing those two options. Okay, so how did they do this? Yeah, so they included patients who presented with at least 24 hours of redness, swelling, induration, local warmth, or purulence, or tenderness, basically all the features of cellulitis or abscess. And so this trial was really looking at people who had larger abscesses or clear evidence of cellulitis. All of the abscesses were treated with incision and drainage, and then the patients were randomized to 10 days of either clindamycin or TMP-SMX. 
Uh, and the primary outcome was clinical cure at seven to 10 days after their course of antibiotics. Okay, so what did they find? Yeah, so this was designed as a superiority trial, and it was powered to detect a 10% difference between the treatment strategies. So they enrolled 524 patients, and they found that the cure rates were basically the same in both groups. 80% of patients were cured in the clindamycin group, and 78% were cured in the TMP-SMX group, with no statistically significant difference. Okay, so super important finding. We, we treat these patients all the time, but most of the patients that we see with... Um, with bad cellulitis tend to have other comorbidities that predispose them to cellulitis. So what was the comorbidity pattern in these patients? Yeah, that's a really important limitation of this study, actually. So uh, the the patients that were excluded from this trial were, first of all, anyone with a superficial skin infection, like impetigo was excluded. So they were looking really at more uh, deeply seated infections. But they also excluded patients who had a complicated infection. So patients who had an infection at the in the genital region or a hand infection, infections that were associated with bites. Uh, if the patient had a high fever and looked like they needed more heavy-duty course of antibiotics, they were excluded. And then really importantly, patients with comorbidities that might have an immunosuppressive effect or patients who are on immunosuppressing medications. And this was defined very broadly to include things like diabetes, chronic kidney disease, or morbid obesity, those patients were excluded from this patient population. So really importantly, this was a relatively healthy population and patients with uh, significant comorbid disease were excluded. So it makes me wonder what percentage of patients actually were eligible. I, I feel like uh, cellulitis requiring antibiotic therapy is actually relatively uncommon in an otherwise healthy population. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure that that's the case. I think that maybe a little bit biased by the patient population that you and I see as hospitalists, uh, because outpatient uh, cellulitis is actually incredibly important, and I feel like our primary care physicians would probably disagree with that. So cellulitis accounted for like 14 million outpatient visits in 2005, and I know you're saying that it's, you know, you think most of those patients have a comorbidity. I can't answer that specifically, but I can tell you that when doing this trial, they assessed 850 patients for eligibility, and 520 were included in the intention to treat population. So they didn't exclude a ton of people. If anything, this is better than most trials. Uh, fair enough. That's that's a higher percentage. So roughly just over 60% of patients were included. So that's higher than I would expect it. The, the other reason to worry about the exclusion of patients with comorbidity, though, is that both medications, clindamycin and Ceftra, have important side effects and side effects that we would worry about, especially in patients who have other comorbidities. So, for example, Ceftra with its interaction with the renin-angiotensin system and inducing hyperkalemia or clindamycin as being uh, potentially pre as, or clindamycin being an antibiotic that seems to be more preferentially related to C. difficile. Yeah, I think that that's a very important point that you make. Um, I, I agree with. So the in this study, they didn't find any difference in adverse effects. No patients contracted C. difficile, um, and so I I totally agree with you that you know in a relatively healthy patient population, you may be less likely to see some of those side effects, and that becomes really important for a drug like TMP SMX, which Fahad called Septra, but rest assured he has no financial interest in that company. Um, <laughs> That's right. I broke my own rule about this. <laughs> so um, 
you know, we, we've seen some recent, there was a recent paper published in the British Medical Journal by one of our own trainees here in Toronto, um, uh, showing that uh, the use of cotrimoxazole, or another word for TMPSMX, uh, was associated with mortality when those patients were also on renin-angiotensin blockade, right? And so I, I totally agree with you. These drugs are not benign. Uh, and uh, to be honest, one of the I think important questions that we might see when you, when you look at that is if you have to pick between clindamycin and TMPSMX, recognizing that they're relatively uh, similar in terms of uh, their efficacy, maybe you lean towards uh, clindamycin because of it's less likely to have a multitude of effects that, that TMPSMX can have. Although, as you mentioned, we don't know whether it might predispose more to C. difficile. Yeah, it would be a hard, uh, it would be a difficult decision to make. And given that the first line therapy for cellulitis also includes agents such as penicillin, which don't have uh, the problems that either of these agents have, uh, I wonder if you would potentially not use either of these agents unless you were in an MRSA endemic region. Well, that's, I think, absolutely true. Uh, One of the challenges, of course, is that you know, the rates of community-acquired MRSA, certainly in the United States, have reached endemic proportions um, in, in most areas of the United States. In Canada, we're a little bit more fortunate, and I, I think that most people who present with, uh, with a skin or soft tissue infection don't get started on something like uh, clindamycin or TMPS-SMX, and instead, as you said, are started on a beta-lactam. So getting to that question of microbiology, what was the microbiology of the infections that they saw in this trial? Yeah, so the most common, I, so let's start with, with one point, which is that the vast majority of the microbiology they were able to get was from abscesses. They were able to get culture results for over 50% of patients, but it's important to note that these cultures are mostly from the patients who had an abscess. 80% of the patients who had cellulitis could did not have any cult, anything to culture, uh, and so much like with the pneumonia, the treatment is empiric in that context. Of the culture results that they did have, 40% uh, were staph aureus and 32% were MRSA. So pretty high rates of MRSA. That is very high. That is very high. And then it defends their choice of antibiotic. So what's your, your final summary takeaway from this? I think the final summary here is that uh, this high quality randomized control trial showed that both clindamycin and TMP-SMX have high rates of cure for patients with skin and soft tissue infections, even in regions where there are high endemic rates of uh, MRSA. Great. Fahad, that brings our whirlwind antibiotic tour to a bit of a close. Why don't we move on to our good stuff segment? Tell me what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week. So yet another New England Journal article. Uh, I feel like this is our trend this week along with antibiotics. So I'm going to break that trend soon enough, so don't worry. Don't you worry. Great. Uh, So this is an article that looked at the impact of height on cardiovascular risk. It's called Genetically Determined Height and Coronary Artery Disease by Nelson and colleagues. The motivation for this trial was driven by a longstanding epidemiologic observation that people who are shorter generally have higher cardiovascular risk. But most scientists who studied this question thought that the association between shorter height and cardiovascular risk was driven by a confounder, and the important confounder of poor nutrition early in life, which we know is related to stunting and lack of height achievement, 
height attainment as an adult, and also the fact that poor nutrition early in life is a risk factor for later metabolic diseases such as diabetes, obesity, or cardiovascular disease. Uh, people may know this as the Barker hypothesis or the fetal origins of an adult disease hypothesis. Um, what's different and novel about this article is that they didn't rely on the actual height of the patient. What they looked at is genes that determine height. So they took 180 known height-associated genetic variants, and they looked at the risk of coronary heart disease in 65,000 cases and 20,000 controls. And what they found was a strong relationship between these genes that determine height and risk of having coronary heart disease. And so, for example, to put this into context, a person who is five feet tall versus someone who's five foot six would have a 30% greater risk of heart disease. Uh, what's important about this finding is that it suggests that there's some shared biologic processes that determine both height and perhaps atherosclerosis or the risk of having plaque rupture and uh, an actual ischemic event. Super interesting, very dramatic, and as someone who is marginally vertically challenged, it's a little concerning. <laughs> That's right, uh, along with your South Asian ethnicity. Don't forget about that. Yeah, the cards are stacked against me. So uh, my good stuff is actually sort of in keeping with our theme of antibiotics. So, Fahad, have you heard of the Leech Book of Bald? I have not. Any of those words. I don't even know. Is that English? <laughs> <laughs> it's In fact, it's Old English. So this is an Old English medical text that was probably compiled in around the 9th century. Uh, and this is one of the sort of earliest surviving manuscripts of uh, medieval, medieval cures. So a couple of scientists uh, in the UK at the University of Nottingham... Sounds medieval. Uh, <laughs> it sounds Robin Hoodie. That's right. So um, look, turn back to the Leech Book of Bard for some inspiration. Uh, and there's some pre precedent for this. Uh, one of the most commonly used malaria treatments, Artemisin, uh, actually comes from ancient Chinese uh, remedies. So... Here's, here's what they read. Take cropleek and garlic of both equal quantities. Pound them well together. Take wine and bullock's gall. Mix with the leek. Let it stand nine days in the brass vessel. So what did they do? They took some versions of leek and garlic. They mixed them with wine that they bought from like an organic English winemaker and bile salts from a cow, and then they mixed it in a beaker with brass, and when they let it stand for nine days, they found that whatever concoction came out of it, which was some viscous, disgusting slime, has effect against MRSA. The potion killed 90% of MRSA on uh, the skin of mice. So they're sort of investigating now what exactly it is about this mix of, of uh, herbal and copper and, you know, uh, letting it steep for nine days that, that is effective. But there perhaps Can is Can I suggest bile salts? <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to the cluster randomized control trial of the Leech Book of Bard versus penicillin. That's right. That's right. Coming to a Canadian hospital near you. That's right. All right. So that's my good stuff segment. Um, thanks, Fahad. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Great to be with you. Nothing again. quite like two internists talking about infectious diseases, which they know relatively little about. 
That's right. That's right. I can't wait for the letters. Okay. Uh, okay. Take care. Talk to you soon.